Corinthians. We're going to let you go ye. And turn to the book of Genesis chapter 3. And last week we started out with the uh, idea of a prophet, the definition of prophecy and those things. Tonight we're, again, a little bit of a summary, but we're going to get into the actual study here. That's why we're in Genesis 3. And uh, one of the things that we need to do is just set some general groundwork as we go through the prophecies that are in the Scripture. And what we mean by this is just how to interpret prophecy. Oftentimes, people will go, well, that's your interpretation. And then they want to spiritualize and change this and say, well, this really isn't talking about that. Uh, probably one of the greatest examples uh, of that kind of, um, I'm not quite sure what you would call it, uh, was Harold Camping. He would go through and he said the number of the fish that are in the net are the number of nations. Uh, absolutely an arbitrary call by Mr. Camping. Uh, there's no evidence in the Bible that Jesus was trying to make that connection. You see, if we're going to understand prophecy properly, we must start with a literal understanding of the words. The point was that there were a lot of fish in the net and the net didn't break. And when God does his work, he keeps the harvest. The harvest is not lost. Uh, and so we start with a literal, a real grammar-based understanding of prophecy. Even when the Bible is speaking figuratively, like in the book of Daniel, it talks about the uh, ram with one horn uh, flies above the ground. Now, rams normally don't fly, but as we uh, uh, understand that ram, even though it's not a real ram, that's what Daniel saw, was figuratively speaking of Alexander the Great, the head of the what would be known as the Grecian Empire. And it talks about the one horn on the ram, and it was broken and four horns came up. Well, Alexander died, and the Greek uh, empire, as it were, in the days of Alexander, was divided into four different uh, spheres of interest, north, south, east, and west. And the, Daniel goes through and gives a prophecy of what was going to happen as those different kings, especially the one uh, of the north, which would have been the east, fighting the one of south, which would have been Egypt, and and, and they go back and forth in the, in the book of Daniel. It calls them north and south, and they fight with each other and, and cast devices against each other. And historians go through and say, this is too accurate to be a prophecy. Daniel could not have written this when he lived uh, uh, several hundred uh, years or so before Alexander. And uh, so, therefore, it must have been written in a much later time period. No, uh, the author of history, we have no problem uh, understanding that the creator of the universe, the author of all history, might just know what happens before it actually happens. Amen. 
But we must start with a literal understanding. If the prophecy has no actual fulfillment, then there cannot be any way to verify whether the prophecy was actually fulfilled or not. Now, this is a device that is often used by the uh, those who would, as it's talked about in the book of Ephesians, lie in wait to deceive. Uh, how many of you have heard of the Seventh-day Adventist church? Um, there was a fellow, his name was Miller, and he had had all these special visions and revelations, and he had prophesied Jesus was coming back, and and that this was going to happen, and that was going to happen, and his reliability was perfect. Zero percent. Nothing happened, did he say? I mean, absolutely nothing. And after failed prophecy, after failed prophecy, even Mr. Miller got discouraged at his uh, reliability rating there, and he quit. Well, unfortunately for mankind, there was a deacon in the church who had a wife, uh, Deacon White, and his wife, Ellen G. White, who is the actual founder of the Seventh-day Adventist cult as we know it today, went through all of Mr. Miller's prophecies and gave them spiritual fulfillments. So now... Mr. Miller was off the hook. You see, he didn't know what he was prophesying. And so they didn't have actual fulfillments. They had spiritual fulfillments. And now he's right at 100%. Because there's no way to check it. You see, when God gives prophecy in the Bible, we start with a literal grammatical word usage. Because God is talking about something happening. And even when figurative language is used, we go back and we put that figurative language in a literal context as the ram flying and hardly touching the ground was simply talking about the speed at which Alexander uh, uh, forged his conquest of the then known world died before he was 32 years old. His reported last words were, are there no worlds left to conquer? Don't know if he actually said that, wasn't there. Uh, but we'll, I mean, certainly fitting with his character and what he did, but the Bible was absolutely correct. Now, as we start out with a literal understanding, we've got to also be in uh, remembrance that Prophecy, the fulfillment of that prophecy, the words there cannot, will not, and do not contradict other Scripture. You see, if we're going to understand prophecy correctly, we don't have one passage of Scripture that contradicts another. An example of this is the last uh, nine chapters of the book of Ezekiel, 40 through 48 deal with a temple in which sacrifices are going to be offered. And, and there are some basic different ways that that a temple is explained. One is that it's a figurative spiritual passage and it's not talking about anything literal. Well, if that is true, then why is it included? Well, we have no idea. There's never been a temple that looked like this. It was built like this in Jerusalem. 
uh, the temple wasn't serviced as it is described in uh, the book of Ezekiel. And in fact, it is only the um, line of uh, Zadok that is there. And uh, Eli's house is completely cut out. His descendants have no place of service. Oh, wait a minute. Wasn't that prophesied by Samuel? That God was going to cut off Eli and he wouldn't have any place of service? If you remember in the days of Jesus, you had Ananias and Caiaphas. And they both called high priest. One was Eli's descendants and the other was the other son of Aaron's descendants. And, and, and there was always just a little bit of conflict there. But the Bible tells us in Ezekiel's temple that that's not going to be. You see, the simplest way is Ezekiel's temple is going to be the temple during the millennial kingdom. It hasn't happened yet. It's going to be there. And... This is what helps us keep our Bible in check. You see, there is much argument about when the Lord is coming back. Is is there going to be a rapture of the church? Now, anyone who believes their Bible does not argue about the fact that Jesus is coming to take the saved people. It's when. Is it going to happen before the tribulation begins somewhere in the middle of the tribulation or at the end of the tribulation. And and, uh, different people argue these things all back and forth and they've written books and and, uh, they make all kinds of arbitrary things. But you know what the Bible says? The Bible says when Antichrist shows up, he's going to wear out the saints of God. And yet Jesus said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against my church. If the church is there when Antichrist is there and Antichrist wears out the saints of God, wait a minute, we have, we have something going on here that is contrary to the simple understanding of Scripture, do we not? But if the church isn't there, all of a sudden we have no more conflict again. Because the Antichrist is not fighting against the church. The church is gone. It's in heaven awaiting the return at the end of the tribulation period. And so the Antichrist, one of the reasons he has the power and the ability to do the things the Bible says he's going to do is because the church isn't going to be here to oppose him. And by the way, we do not, as the church, we do not oppose the powers of evil by trying to tell the government what to do. The greatest exercise of our opposition to evil in this world is us in this church living lives that please God. You really want to be offensive to the world? You want to just set these uh, crazy people off, foaming at the mouth, and uh, just live for Christ? Every once in a while, you're going to bump into one of them. Oh, I remember sitting on the airplane one time and just got talking to the person beside me. And they said, and this was years ago. So they they said, "Uh, are are you kind of like Jerry Falwell? And I said, oh, no, you got to be kidding me. 
He is so liberal, and I mean, their eyes got this big around. And, what am I doing? Am I going to survive the? You know? uh, it, it was it was hilarious, terrifying. This poor soul that just had no understanding of the Bible whatsoever. The safest person you can be around is somebody who actually believes this book. Amen. It's the uh, it's the people who are off their rails and not believing the Bible. But we we we've, we've got to understand prophecy. In order for it to be prophecy, God says it's got to be accurate. Therefore, there must be some literal fulfillment. There must be something we can look at. When people start spiritualizing prophecies and things, it's because they want to get away from the literal meaning of the words. We're not afraid of that. It must be kept in and made sure that our understanding of this prophecy doesn't contradict the clear teaching of other scriptures. There is going to be a context of time and culture. when it talks about in one of the prophecies says that Israel's going to be given wings as an eagle to fly into a place to be hidden for uh, uh, basically half of the tribulation period. Uh, a lot of these new uh, scholars take that passage. See, they're going to use airplanes. Um, that's not what it's saying. It's saying that God is going to move them speedily. They they might use airplanes, but God doesn't need airplanes for people to be able to move into a hiding place uh, from the Antichrist quickly. We keep it in its literal context, its prophetic context, its time and culture, the context of Scripture as a whole. And we have to remember two things, and this may sound just a little confusing, but there are times when God talks about more than one event in the same prophecy. Uh, the way this is called, if you just want a title, it's called the mountaintop rule. If you're standing on top of a mountain and you're looking out at other mountains, you will see the tops of the mountains, but you really have no way of gauging the valleys in between. And there are times when there'll be two or three prophecies all put together talking about separate events separated sometimes by hundreds or even thousands of years, but it's all talking about, it's all given in one passage. And in opposition to that, there'll be other passages where you may have this little bit of prophecy here, and all of a sudden it goes back into a psalm, either praising God or bemoaning the troubles, uh, as often happens in the psalms, and then goes back to prophecy, and then goes back to the actual psalm and the message of the song. Do you know what this means? If you're going to understand your Bible correctly, you're going to have to put forth some effort. Amen? You're going to have to work. That's just part of understanding. And if we're lazy or we want to take shortcuts, we're going to get in trouble. We are going to miss it. We can trust what God says that we cannot see. In fact, 
Uh, we're going to be looking at a few prophets, prophecies here tonight before the end of our time, I hope. And, and we're going to find out that there is a blessing for simply trusting God's Word. How many of you have read the book of Revelation? The Bible in the first chapter said there's a special blessing. Blessed is everyone that readeth and keepeth the words. Uh, there's a lot of things in the book of Revelation I can't keep. Uh, but there are those letters to those seven churches. And there's an awful lot of instruction there. And so we, we need to just finish here is, is setting some general rules. We never will get past a literal understanding. Even when it's speaking figuratively, we must put those figures in literal time and space events because that's how God intends prophecy to be fulfilled. If someone just is talking about some spiritual thing out there, how would you know if the prophet is correct if there is no actual fulfillment? That's a trick that man uses. It's been there for for years. Uh, Man uses that all the time. So let's... Go to Genesis 3, if you're there, verse 15. This is the first actual prophecy that's in the Bible. It says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Uh, if you like big phrases and things, this is called the Proto-Evangelum or the Pre-Evangelism. This is the testimony of what God is going to do. Now, God is actually speaking to the serpent here in this passage. Now, how many of you want to believe that all the animals spoke and Dr. Doolittle was actually real and in the Millennial kingdom will talk to animals and they'll talk back to us. If you really want to believe that, be my guest. Uh, but that's not what it was talking about. We know who was in the snake, do we not? It's just simply the devil was there. And using that snake as a platform, excuse me, to speak to Eve... And as God is speaking there, he says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman. Do you think Eve ever spoke to another snake again as long as she lived? Nope, don't think so. There were some bad feelings there. And remember, Adam lived 930 years. And... We do not have the record of Eve's life, but even if it was percentage-wise long as it would have been, she still would have made 850 easily, uh, maybe close to 900. And so there was a long time there, and it says, between thy seed and her seed. Now, uh, we won't get into too much detail, but we understand the seed of the serpent is... Those that follow the devil. In the Bible, the woman has no seed. That, that is traced through the man, not the woman. But there would be only one in all of history that was born without an earthly father. And he would do battle 
with the serpent. That's how simple this is. And the ultimate battle is between Jesus and Satan. It says, It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Talking about the seed of the woman, the one who was born without an earthly father, was going to bruise the head of the devil. And uh, someone's often, people question, why, why is the word bruise left? Uh, does anybody know what a concussion is? The, the medical definition of a concussion. It is a brain bruise. It is a bruise to the, to the brain. It's where your brain actually bumps the skull and uh, gets a, um, a, a, a contusion. You can have a very minor concussion or as uh, the NFL and boxers have found out, uh, you can actually get so much brain damage that it will actually stop you from functioning. A severe uh, concussion can kill you. And... Uh, The idea here is that the devil was going to be stopped from doing his work. He's going to be bound for a thousand years during the millennial kingdom. And then his ultimate is going to be, uh, end is going to be in the lake of fire and brimstone. The Bible says where the beast and the false prophet are. They've been there a thousand years and they're still present tense, and the devil would be put in there with him. But there's going to come a time when his power is stopped. If we go to the book of, of uh, Peter, First uh, Peter, it says, The devil is a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. We're not going to take time to build the whole thing up, but they tell us when a lion has received his death wound, when he is mortally injured, that he will just continually roar and kill every living thing that is in his path, from an elephant to a blade of grass. And, boy, does that not describe the work of the devil. But he is hindered. His work has been stopped by the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, You want to... uh, People... Every once in a while, I tell the stories, and it's not all the same story, though it may sound similar. Somebody will call up, do you, do you uh, take care of spells? Somebody has cursed me, or uh, the devil is, is bothering me. Can you exercise demons? And, and uh, listen, that, that is not within our providence. But I'll tell you the best way to get rid of the devil. Start serving Christ. You hide behind Jesus. You start worshiping the Lord, true and honest. And I'll tell you what, devil's not going to bother you. Uh, so much of the, is blamed on the devil, and, and that simply is not his fault. And it says here that the devil would bruise his heel. And, of course, crucifixion is the only form of capital punishment that we know of where the heel is bruised. The nail is driven in uh, through the ankle and out under the heel. And you actually are resting. How many of you have ever gotten a stone in your shoe and stepped down right on your heel bone? I mean, I've done that on a few occasions. And, I mean, you talk about 
pain. I mean, it will send a shudder. But imagine having to rest all your body weight on a nail that is going through your ankle under your heel bone. And yet that was part of the way the crucifixion worked is the pain would grow to a point to where you would not be able to push yourself up. You would just simply be hanging there and that would suffocate you. And so uh, the, the prophecy was ultimately fulfilled on the cross. The devil has received his death wound, the, bra- the bruised head. Jesus' heel was bruised on the cross, but all of that was uh, superseded by Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Amen? Uh, This is a prophecy. It had not happened and would not happen for nearly uh, uh, 3,500, or at this point, nearly 4,000 years before Jesus would hang on the cross and pay the price for our sins. And yet, here is the prophecy laid out. And when we look through the Bible, we say, wow, that makes so much sense. And I I promise you this, we couldn't understand Genesis 3.15 the way we do if we didn't have our New Testament to shed light on that and help us see what actually happened and real events. Turn with me to the book of Jude, if you would. The book of Jude... That is that one chapter book right before Revelation. We're going to look at two verses here. Jude 14 and 15. It says, And Enoch, also the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So if we take the overall context here, It's talking about those that oppose the work of God, those that stand against the work of God in this world. Remember, Jude is kind of the opening salvo, we might say, of the book of Revelation. And uh, we are told to earnestly contend for the faith, to hold fast that which we have, our common salvation, and that it is Jesus It is the Lord who is coming with 10,000 of his saints, and he's going to execute judgment. Now, Enoch, if we remember, is the seventh generation from Adam. He had a son named Methuselah, who was the longest lived of all the people. Enoch was the shortest of the pre-flood patriarchs that lived because at 300 years of age, he was translated. He was just plucked out by God, received up to where God is because he walked with God. What a testimony Enoch had. The Bible said he was a prophet and that he prophesied. You you know, this is the only recording we have of Enoch's prophecy. 
His words are not listed in the book of Genesis, so how can we know that this is correct? Well, we go back to the Scriptures, and the Scriptures say this. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 33, if you would. Deuteronomy 33. And we start in verse 1. It says, And this is the blessing wherewith Moses, the man of God, blessed the children of Israel before his death. And he said, The Lord came from Sinai and rose up from Seir unto them. He shined forth from Mount Paran. And he came with ten thousands of his saints. From his right hand went a fiery law for them. Yea, he loved the people. All his saints are in thy hand. And they sat down at thy feet. And every one shall receive of thy words. Moses commanded us a law even the inheritance of the congregation of Jacob. And he was king in Jeshuran when the heads of the people and the tribes of Israel were gathered together. So we read this. This is a blessing. Moses was saying his last prayer and benediction over the children of Israel. And he describes... God coming down on Mount Sinai as the Lord coming with his saints. Uh, The idea would be fulfilled in the nation of Israel as the nation grew and followed the words of God. They would be following him. And we understand that this prophecy of Enoch ultimately will be fulfilled at the great white throne judgment where God judges every unsaved person of their deeds. What Jude is trying to tell us is that from the beginning of history to the end of history, God has promised to judge evil. So that's not our job. See, this prophecy is to teach us something. It's to show us how many times have people said, well, I'm a Christian and I'm going to set this thing right. Wrong. That's not your job. Your job is to be obedient to God. God is the one who's going to set things right. Amen? And let's see if we can sneak one more in here. Uh, Turn with me, if you would, to uh, Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. And we're going to find out that God gave prophecy to Noah. He gave him information that Noah had no way of knowing. And so we come down to uh, verse 8. And it says, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. And uh, we come down here to verse 13. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence. 
through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Runes shalt thou make in the ark, and shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. And this is the fashion which thou shalt make of it. And God gives him the dimensions. He tells him the type of wood. He tells him how to waterproof it. Now, did Noah have any way of knowing any of these things? No. God gave him direct revelation and told him what to do. And what did Noah do? He didn't sit down and say, Oh, the ark is a picture of Jesus. And this is going to help people understand. No, that's our place. Noah had a physical problem at hand. If he did not build the ark before God sent the water, Noah and his family and all the animals would die. And that would be the end of everything. God gave him direction. Now, let's turn to 1 Peter. Uh, actually, let's turn to 2 Peter 2.5 and then we'll come back and catch 1 Peter here. Oops. Second Peter. Chapter 2 and verse 5. It says, And spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. So, here is the example of Noah that... Even though God brought judgment on the old world, he saved Noah. How did he save Noah? By giving him information that he had no other way of getting. He was telling him, it's going to rain. There's going to be water. Noah had never seen rain. If we understand our Bible correctly, there was no rain before Noah's flood. God changed the way that this world was configured in original creation due to Noah's flood. Uh, the fact that some event like this happened is testified to by every scientist on the face of this earth today. The way we know the difference is the evolutionists say it was an asteroid. If you believe the Bible, it was a flood. And... Uh, it changed everything on this earth. Noah built it. Now let's go to the book of First Peter, chapter three. Now, verse twenty, which sometime were disobedient when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein a few, that is eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is gone unto heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Now I will challenge you that this passage here in First Peter chapter 3 is one of the most difficult passages in our New Testament for people to understand. If you really want to get confused, get some commentaries on it and just read what people say. 
and you will see some extraordinary things uh, 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 proposed here and said here. But what we simply have is God was using the actual life of Noah to paint a prophetic picture for you and I. It says, the like figure, so now we're talking about uh, 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 figurative speech, we're talking about Pictures and types in the Bible. And it tells us here that that they were saved by water. Now, how was Noah saved by water? He was actually saved by the ark, right? But if the ark hadn't floated on the water, it wouldn't have mattered what Noah was in. Because every living thing that had breath, except Noah and the animals that were in the ark, was killed. The ark, if we want the proper typology or picture here, is a picture of Christ. We get in Christ, and then we get in the water. We get saved first and baptized. They got in the ark, and the ark got in the water. Um, Were they saved by water? No more than uh, we are saved by baptism. You see, it's not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. If I want to be... Here's what Jesus told John the Baptist. Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Amen? And if I want to have a good conscience toward God, I get saved. And I get baptized. I get saved the Bible way. There's only one way. I get baptized the Bible way. There's only one way. And as I do this, I am fulfilling the picture that God used and painted with the actual life and deeds of Noah. That Noah would have had no way of knowing or preparing or doing except God came and told him of things that had not happened Yet, See, that's how prophecy works. And we take a very difficult passage and we make it simple. Christ is the ark. The ark got in the water and was floated away from all of the destruction and devastation on the surface of the earth and they were saved. You get in Jesus, you get saved. And then you should get baptized so that you have a clear conscience between you and God following the example that Jesus set. And prophecy is first and foremost to teach us about Jesus Christ. That's how prophecy works. Enoch's prophecy... God is going to judge and convict the ungodly. Fulfilled, white, great white throne has yet to be fulfilled. Uh, but we can read that prophetic passage in the book of Revelation and make it fit perfectly into Enoch's words and understand that God is going to judge. And I can learn something. 
I don't have to judge. I don't have to take care of things because God is going to. The promise of the Redeemer was filled in Jesus Christ. I do not have to worry about being defeated by the devil because Jesus has already won the battle. Amen? And then Noah's Ark is I follow the direction and the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Noah painted a picture of that keeping me away from the false doctrine of baptismal regeneration, meaning that you are saved when you're put in the water of the baptistry. Uh, that is a doctrine that was invented by man. It has nothing to do. It says here, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. Uh, it was old uh, General Sam Houston. He put off his baptism until he was later in life. And uh, one of the things that he said was, that uh, at his baptism, he says, I feel sorry for all the fish at the bottom of the river here. But we do have one good hope. Uh, we believe Mr. Houston was trying to make light or make a joke here of a great spiritual truth. But it was a Baptist preacher and actually a Baptist bride that he had married, a young la- uh, not young lady, a, uh, a Baptist woman he had married that convicted him and gave him the scripture And he was baptized into a Baptist church in Houston, Texas. And so we do have some hope that that Baptist preacher back there in whatever that would have been, the 1830s, late 30s, early 40s, that uh, we might just see that honorary cuss on the right side of eternity. Uh, Because he may have made a joke, but he wasn't joking about this, and I'm sure the preacher wasn't joking about this, and following the tradition that is in the Bible. Baptism doesn't take away our sins. It identifies us with Jesus Christ and with His church. Amen? And so that's just to start on prophecy. We're going to, I'm going to try not to be too tedious, but uh, we do want to cover things because There's an awful lot said about prophecy and things that just are not in the Bible and have greatly added to confusion. And so we're going to keep moving through that. So let's just have a short time of prayer here and then we'll get into our actual prayer time.